We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. Um, We are still in John chapter 2. Last week, we began John chapter 2 by looking at the miracle, the first of Jesus' miracles, the first of his signs that he performed. And that was the turning of the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. Today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. So our scripture reading will be John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. Our teaching will focus on uh, verses 13 through 22, uh, but our scripture reading will be John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. So if you follow along with me as I read... After this, he, and that is Jesus, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a cord of a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So here we have uh, another of Jesus's most radical, probably one of the most radical works of Jesus. A lot of Jesus' miracles and things that he had performed uh, were done for a couple of reasons. One, out of compassion for those to whom he was going to bring healing and those sorts of things. And, And in all of the cases, it was to prove a little bit of something of who his identity is. This one is similar in the latter regard. Except this is not a a miracle of compassion or he's not bringing healing to somebody. He's not feeding um, a group of people. He's not um, 
raising people from the dead. What he is doing here is a radical thing because here you get a glimpse of the, the anger and zeal of Jesus to cleanse the temple. Now, I want to say at the outset here as we begin, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Jesus, you'll be familiar uh, with uh, this story because it occurs in, in all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It occurs in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. The difference being is that in those other gospels, which are the synoptic gospels, all of those are said to have occurred at the end of Jesus's uh, ministry, actually his final week before his crucifixion on the cross. John, however, has this event at the very beginning of his story. So we have to ask the question, uh, is, is, this, is this one event that's just recorded in different places, or did Jesus actually do this cleansing of the temple on uh, two different accounts. Like I said, the synoptics have it at the very end, right uh, at the last Passover when Jesus is in Jerusalem, right before his crucifixion. John has it here at the beginning, and some say it would be, including some of my, my uh, professors in, uh, in graduate school, some would say there would be no way that Jesus would get away with such a thing twice. Uh, and so they think that John is moving this account to the beginning for theological, uh, theological reasons. So it's basically the same event, just John is putting it there for, uh, for uh, one specific purpose. Uh, however, I think there's a pretty good case for understanding that this is actually two different events. One happens at the beginning, the very first of uh, the Passovers during Jesus' ministry, and uh, one also at the end, at the very end of his uh, ministry. It doesn't matter a great deal either way, but I tend to think that this is the first of two different events. And um, so this is, the, this is actually at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, why I think that is because you have a couple of time markers here. John's uh, telling of this story is fairly tight chronologically. We saw this in... Chapter 1, when Jesus, uh, when John the Baptist is baptizing in the wilderness, and this is the next day that Jesus came to him, verse 29. And then the next day that John was standing with two of his disciples, and they saw Jesus, and he says, he's the Lamb of God. And then in verse 43, it says, and then the next day they went to Galilee, they found Philip. Um, and so it seems that there's a very tight chronology here. It also begins with the, the story of the wedding at Cana. It says, and then on the third day, so this is a very busy week in the life of Jesus here. And then at the beginning of our passage here in verse 12, right after the miracle of the turning of the water and wine in Cana, in verse, verse 11, 1 through 11, it says in verse 12, and this is after this, again, another time marker, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And then in verse 13, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So I think all of that putting it together, it seems to suggest that this is not just John relocating this story for uh, theological reasons. Uh, I think that this really did end up happening twice. 
which is significant that Jesus would do this activity in the temple twice. So a couple of things uh, for us to focus on in this passage, um, and you could follow along in your handout. Um, two different sections here I want you to notice. Here's the first section we're going to deal with. Jesus' zeal for God's house. Jesus' zeal for God's house. As we saw in verse 13, it's the Passover of the Jews. Now, the Passover uh, is one of the major events in the life of the Israelites. The Passover uh, marked the Jews' exodus from their bondage of slavery in Egypt, right? It was on the night that God was going to deliver them out of Egypt when the, tenth, the last uh, of the ten plagues uh, was going to come upon the Egyptians God had given instructions for the Israelites that they were to uh, take a, a young lamb. They were to, uh, a perfect lamb. They were to sacrifice that lamb outside of their homes. They were to take the blood of that lamb and apply it upon the doorposts, on the top and on the sides of the doorposts. And that was going to be a sign for the, the angel who was going to come and bring destruction over all the firstborn. That was going to be a sign on the houses, and they will pass over. That's where we get the idea, pass over here. And so the Jews celebrated it that night, and they celebrated it every year since, up until Jesus' day. And Jesus regularly uh, observed this Passover event by going to Jerusalem. I think John records that he had done this at least three different times, three times. So the Passover of Jews is at hand. So Jesus leaves Capernaum up there in the northern area of Galilee. He comes down to Jerusalem. It says up because uh, they, the up and down was not relative to the map. It was relative to um, elevation. And so he goes into the temple. And as he is going into the temple in verse 14, uh, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers are sitting there. Now, remember, this Passover feast was a major uh, event in the life of Israel, and they were offering their sacrifices. Um, lots of different uh, types of offerings needed to be made, and that's why a lot of different animals were there. And so there's, um, there's kind of a service that is being performed here on behalf of money changers and the animal sellers in the temple working underneath the uh, the authority of the, the temple ruling class so that people who are making trips to Jerusalem didn't have to kind of bring their own animals um, and they could do the uh, currency exchange right there in the temple because the temple was only taking shekels. This is what Jesus is walking into. Now, what's the problem here? that Jesus encounters in verse 15. Because in verse 15, it says, he started to make a whip of cords and was driving all of the people out. The, and the sheep and the oxen and the money changers and uh, those who had the pigeons, he told them to go away. What's the issue here? Aren't they providing um, a service of convenience? Well, I think the problem here is where, well, it's, couple, it's twofold. One, I think there is a problem of uh, greed and extortion that is taking place. 
And the reason why I say this is because in the other accounts that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record Jesus as saying something a little bit different there. In Matthew chapter 21, for instance, says Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, which is a, a quote from Isaiah. Uh, but then he adds, but you have made it a den of robbers, a den of robbers. So unless something radical had happened, uh, transformation in the, the two or three years between Passovers, it's very likely that the one, at least a part of the problem was uh, some greed or extortion or thievery was taking place. That's one of the problems. But here's the, here's the other problem. And that is where it's happening, where the location is. That it says that this is happening inside of the larger temple precincts. Now, let me see. I have a, a map here to kind of give you a, a guide. And I know I have some artists here. Uh, if you want to quickly sketch that. I think that would be kind of cool. Um, this is uh, an architectural drawing based off of archaeological digs and evidence of the larger Temple Mount in the time of Jesus. It's a pretty magnificent structure, isn't it? Um, prior to this, it was quite uh, humble. Um, but, uh, but as we see here, it took quite a bit of years and a lot of fundraising from Herod and his family to, to build this temple, temple complex. I don't know if you can see like the scale, like that's the size of a human person. Like that's a doorway. So you can kind of get the idea of the size and the structure of this whole thing. So this whole thing is the temple mount, the temple area. Uh, this would be the steps leading up. This would be where the ceremonial washings would take place in order to go in. Teaching would be done all along these, uh, these corridors and porticos there. And then there's a series of courts, a series of areas of, of place where people can be. Gentiles could only be around the outside section. Um, there was a court for women. And then the court of the men, as you get closer, and then here's the temple structure Proper. So actually in this passage, we won't get into it a great deal, but the term that's, you see temple in your, uh, in your ESV translation there, there's two different Greek words that are used there. The earlier ones are in reference to the entire thing. Uh, when Jesus is talking with the religious leaders, he's using a different term, which is kind of referred more to this, this thing uh, proper. But the first ones here is Jesus is in the temple area. He's talking about this entire place. Where the, the Gentiles would be, the women would be, the men would be, and then the high priests and uh, the priests would serve in here, and then the high priest would go into the Holy Holies and would offer the sacrifices there. Okay? Get the idea of the scale. I wanted you to see that. So what, back to our second issue here, what's the problem? The problem is that it tells us that the money changers and the animal sellers are filling up this area all around here. It's one thing if they were doing it outside of the temple area and then leading them in, but uh, apparently it had 
encroached upon this entire area here. Now, depending on, you know, the uh, ancient historians, they would say, uh, I think it was Josephus says there were several million people here on Passover, uh, on Passover weekend. So if you can imagine uh, over a million, that may be an inflated number. I don't, we don't know for sure. But just think, you know, at least a million people crowded in here offering worship on one of the high holy days of Israel's history. And instead of focusing on worship, you hear the bleeding of animals, the yelling out of money changers. Okay, you can picture, how many of you have seen actual footage from the, like the New York Stock Exchange when they're doing signs and stuff and yelling and waving their hands? Uh, that's how I like to picture what's happening right here in the courtyards where people are coming to worship. I think that's the problem that is here. That's taking place inside the temple precincts. Do you get your sketches down, kids? Here's, so I gotta change the slide. Uh, here's a zooming in of the, the gonna, you can see there's the bigger one. Now zoom in there, like that. So this was filled with animals and money changers. And so what you had here was, as it says in our passage, as Jesus says in verse 16, you've turned, you've turned my father's house into a house of trade. And this is what gets Jesus, Jesus most riled up. When the place that the Lord God himself had designed as the meeting place between himself and sinful people, the place that he had given specific instructions on how to build, the place where he had given whole books on how worship was to be conducted and in what proper order and who could do it. Think of Leviticus. The exquisite detail that went into the architecture and the design of this. Think pretty much the second half of Exodus. That God was very concerned with how he was to be worshipped and approached. And here you see a corrupting of all of that, a minimizing it, maybe even just... Uh, Taken, uh, taken for granted. This is what Jesus gets Jesus' zeal worked up. Here you see Jesus' anger. Not a lot of people picture Jesus angry, but Jesus was angry. When his worship, or the worship that God had instituted under the old covenant, was, was corrupted. So Jesus decides to go in and clean this up. And then it says in verse 17, his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is from, uh, this is from uh, Psalm 69, which is a Psalm of David, who he's speaking about in this Psalm about the, uh, the ridicule and scorn that he is enduring and the lies that people are saying about him 
when in reality, what he's, what he's trying to do is trying to reform people's hearts, trying to reform Israel's worship. So in Psalm 69, he writes what the disciples quote half of here. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. And so he is slandered for that. So uh, the disciples are saying, Jesus is basically doing the same thing. He's trying to purify and bring restoration to the worship. And he's bringing a judgment, basically, on the leaders of the worship in the temple. So that's the first section of this passage. Jesus' zeal for God's house. Jesus' zeal for proper worship. And here's the second thing uh, we should notice in this passage. Jesus himself is the true temple. So it's right in the midst of Jesus doing this outrageous act, driving out all of the money changers, driving out the animals, and violently doing so, by the way. Because it says that he, he grabbed some cords there, made a cord of whips, and was whipping them around. Think of kind of Indiana Jones with this bull whip. Jesus is doing that to drive the animals out. And the disciples go, oh, this is, this is in fulfillment. This is reminiscent of what David was doing in trying to restore worship in Israel. But notice what happens in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, now when you see Jews in John's gospel, you should, um, you should know right away that this is in reference not to the ethnicity in general. He has in mind the particular Jewish leaders over uh, the people of Israel at this time. So the Jews said to him, think religious authorities or religious leaders, what signs do you show us for doing these things? In other words, you don't have any authority to do this. You need to give some serious authorization of vindication through some signs that, that, this, that you have authority to do this. And Jesus counters with this, this, these words in verse 19. Uh, Destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. Now, you saw that whole temple complex on the, the drawing, right? How massive that is. And I've been up on the top of that uh, before. And it is, I mean, acreage. You're talking acreage, massive. Those, uh, the retaining walls, walls there are uh, 40, 50, 60 feet high, maybe even higher. It's an amazing project, amazing uh, uh, structure. And they said it took 46 years to do this, but this is very interesting uh, what John notes for us here in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. Here you have something very interesting happening. Jesus is uh, has zeal for how God's worship was to be conducted according to the Old Testament instructions. But at the same time, you're noticing here as a transition um, to there's a judgment as well on this temple and on the entire system that's behind it. Here you have Jesus giving it a glimpse of a prophecy, one of the first prophecies that Jesus is giving here, or an indication of his own crucifixion and his own death and resurrection. 
Because it says here, when therefore he was raised from the dead, John is writing back, all the disciples looking back on this incident, they didn't understand it at the time, but after his resurrection from the dead, and they're reminiscing on all the things Jesus taught and Jesus did, they go, you know, when he, when he was, had that interaction with the religious leaders in the temple, when he said, destroy this temple in three days, and I'll raise it up again, they understood when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. So a couple of lessons here uh, to, to notice. Jesus himself is all that the temple represented. And that is the meeting place between God and man. Jesus himself is all that the temple represented. Now, you've heard me teach, hopefully, you've heard me teach on the temple quite a bit. Uh, you might remember from like Hebrews um, that the writer of Hebrews is very clearly kind of spells this out, that when Moses goes up on the top of the mountain on Mount Sinai and the Lord gives him instructions for how he's to build the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that was actually what Moses made was the replica. It was the copy of the heavenly realms. It was supposed to be uh, an image, a little microcosm on earth of what it was like to dwell in the heavenly places where God's throne is. And so that was to be kind of this meeting place then between God and man. He would descend upon with a cloud uh, and descend into the Holy of Holies, and only a high priest was to go into the place, but all of the people of Israel were to gather around. That's what the, the temple, the tabernacle in the temple, signified. It was, it was kind of like a, a, an object lesson, a copy of what, was, what it was really like in heaven. What Jesus is indicating here at the beginning of this passage, which is, in a very veiled way so that they, they didn't quite catch what he, was, what he was saying, Jesus himself is saying that he is the temple, that he is the true temple, and that he is the meeting place between God and man. First Timothy says it, Paul says it this way, For there is one God and there was one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony of, given at the proper time. Or Colossians chapter 2 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule over all authority. Jesus himself is all that the temple represented. That's the first thing we want to notice. Second thing is that Jesus has made the church to be the dwelling place of God in the world. Now, where are you getting that here? Well, we, this is where we kind of have to do a little bit of an extension here on connecting Jesus' body, his physical body, and then how he translates that to the church. After his ascension into the heavenly places, Jesus then makes the church that's here on earth to be the dwelling place of God, the house of God or household of God on earth or in the world. Now, I don't have a slide for this. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. 
to Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul uh, is spelling out what it means for Christians, Jews and Gentiles, to now be that presence of God in the world. The meeting place between God and man in the world is in the church. Notice in verse 14. And I'll just read verse 14 through 22. Where Paul writes of Jesus, He himself is our peace, who has made us both. Now both here, he's talking about Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, now, little note here. Uh, many people notice that that dividing wall of hostility represents the little dividing wall that we saw earlier in the drawing that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court where Israel, Israelites, male and female, could go. You saw that little, you should remember that dividing mark. So a lot of scholars recognize that this is, this dividing wall of hostility, he's talking about the, the wall that separates the Jewish, uh, the Gentile worshipers on the outside of the courtyard with the Jewish worshipers in. And he's saying, he's broken down that wall. We're actually just one now. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. See, Paul's point is, in trying to reconcile the issue, you know, of, you know, a little bit of uh, hostility or little ethnic issues between Israel and Gentiles, he says, actually, there should be no place for that in the church because it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. When you're in Christ, you've now been made one, and you've actually been made into a new man entirely. Continuing on, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, notice the connection here is this group of people is now the household of God. House. Zeal for my house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, notice it, he's kind of switched here to now terminology of a of a building. Because it has a foundation, apostles and prophets. Christ himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Jews and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ are now the dwelling place of God on earth because that's where his spirit dwells. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Here's a couple of others to, to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul writes, um, 
he begins by talking like an agricultural language and then shifts to architectural language. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can uh, lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's what he wrote in Ephesians 2, right? And he goes on. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. First Peter chapter two, Peter says something very similar. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built upon a spiritual uh, up as a spiritual house. To be a holy. So it's not just any house, it's not just any house or dwelling place. It's the house of God, right? Because he continues to say to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Going down a few verses, he says, But you are a chosen race, a holy, pre a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So notice, again, those two things. Jesus himself is the meeting place between God and man. And then after his ascension into the heavenly places, Jesus has made the church to be the dwelling place of God on the earth. You are that temple we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now add to that this. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then lastly, we are also likewise the body of Christ. Remember, in John's passage, the words that Jesus had said to them was destroy this, this temple and I will raise it in three days. And they... Uh, it could be a couple of things. Either, he's either telling them to destroy his body and that he will raise his body in three days, or he could be saying, you destroy this temple and I will raise it, referring then to his body in three days. Either way, the raised, risen body is the one that he's referring to there at the end of the, because it says, John says in verse 21, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. And that imagery of his body is the imagery that is often used as well for the church. We are the body of Christ. A couple of passages. Let me give you a few here. R Romans chapter 12. Um, there's also 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5. But let me just give you two. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body, he's referring to the whole church here, as one body, we have many members, 
and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So a little bit there, but I think Paul makes it even clearer in Ephesians chapter 1. And he put all things under his feet. Now, this is here God putting all things under Christ's feet and gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church. And then notice what he says about the church, which is his body. The church is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So hence we are the body of Christ. Now there's several implications of this. First of all, well, we don't need to look for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. We are that temple. We are the temple. Wherever the church is gathering, we become the meeting place between God and and man. So that's one of the implications here. Jesus himself is, is all that the temple represented, the meeting place between God and man. Jesus has made the church to be that dwelling place in the world. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. So one of the implications then for this would be, um, as Jesus was zealous for his father's house, we need to be zealous for his house. As Jesus was worked up into uh, an anger and a frenzy to see the distortion that was taking place in the Old Testament form of worship, the Old Testament temple, and he needed to be zealous to purify it, we likewise should be zealous in the holiness of his house, which is the church. So friends, a couple of lessons here. One, what an amazing thing it is that we have as we come together here as his people. And as we commune with the Lord Jesus, who says that he is going to be present here, that the spirit dwells here when we gather in this midst. So when we when we confess our sins to one another, when we announce the gospel of what Christ has accomplished for us, that his resurrection is real, it's happened, that we too will share in his divine nature, that we too will be raised from the dead. That's what, that's what we're reminded of here when we, when we read that Jesus, his temple was destroyed and then raised again. But secondly, that we would match Jesus' zeal, that, we would, uh, that our zeal for the purity of the church and all of the individuals in it would match the zeal that Jesus had for the corrupted temple in that day. I think this really, when we think through this, is a call to holiness on behalf of all of the believers. Amen? Friends, when we think about Jesus' zeal 
for that temple, may we likewise have zeal for our church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you that we get a glimpse of who the real Jesus is. How often many conceptions today of Jesus is that he was just nice and loving and just preached peace. Um, may we never fail to, to see the true Jesus who had righteous indignation and righteous anger and wrath for the perversion of the institution you had given as the meeting place between sinful people and your holy presence. God, may we, as we recognize, we are Christ's body. That all who have faith in Jesus Christ are raised to walk in newness of life today. And that you have, uh, when we gather together, you have set it up that we would be the dwelling place of your spirit on this earth. And may we, may we not destroy that. May we keep your dwelling place pure by the holiness and purity of our lives. So God, we, we pray that you do that purifying work into each one of us. That all of us would confess our errors and the ways which we have sinned and gone wrong and that we return again to Christ and his grace. And with a resolve to walk in holiness, knowing what it means for your church on earth. For the body of your son on earth. So God, help us to help to remind us of the great privilege that we have of coming into your presence through Jesus. But also uh, what great responsibility that we have to conduct ourselves in holiness and in purity. We'd ask that you would do that in and through us. And in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, if you would stand for our closing benediction. Reminder, the offering box is um, in the hallway there. Um, and then if you have some questions about the um, home group studies, um, come to me or Paul or Pepe or, or any of the people that are in the, the home groups if you're interested in learning more. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit.
be with all of you as you go. Thank you.